Fifteen years ago this month, the Cato Institute launched the Cato Daily Podcast, and to mark the occasion, we're hoping to give you a token of our appreciation and ask a small favor. Visit cato.org slash cdp15 to get a pair of vinyl Cato Daily Podcast stickers in the mail and give one of them to a friend who might enjoy timely libertarian perspectives on issues of the day. That website, again, is cato.org slash cdp15. And now more than ever, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 25th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. As China rises as a stronger economy, the impulse among many in the Biden administration and in Congress is to boost government-run science. Terrence Keeley is author of the new Cato paper, Don't Be Like China, Why the U.S. Government Should Cut Its Science Budget. We spoke last week. Why do the U.S. and Great Britain feel this need Right now, this has been a talking point for a few years, but right now, why is there this big push to spend more on basic science? In Britain and America, uh, they have bought into a story that their great enemy today is China. They have bought into the story that it is their responsibility as the two great nations, or one great nation and one rather smaller one, to be the world's policeman. And they have bought into the story that the way you arm against China is to invest in pure science more than China, they believe, is investing in pure science. And so you outstrip China's science, and out of that, you get more and better technology. It's all mythology, but that's what is believed in a bipartisan fashion in both Washington, D.C. and London, Britain. So, in a sense, it's both economic, strategic, we're trying to outcompete them in a sense. That is to say, we have all of this knowledge and know-how in uh, and the ability to produce uh, powerful things, be they consumer goods or military technology, and that's how we're going to beat China. Is that about right? That is exactly it. The belief is, exactly as you described, actually, that we, Britain and America, should outstrip China both in terms of military technology and also in terms of the technology that creates wealth, GDP per capita, and income within the two countries. This is believed in a bipartisan fashion in both countries. Okay, so let's uh, boil down specifically on this GDP issue because we can actually look at GDP. Uh, We certainly can. So uh, in in the United States and Great Britain, uh, we've done this before. Uh, What was the big looming threat that led the U.S. and Great Britain to invest so heavily in scientific research, and what was the outcome? It's a very good question. We have done this before, and the outcome was very disappointing. So the National Science Foundation was created in 1950 uh, as part of limbering up for the Cold War, and similar things happened in Britain. What is really interesting about the National Science Foundation in 1950 is you have in the United States of America history from 1776 to 1950, in which the federal government does not invest in pure science. As an act of policy and philosophy, America is laissez-faire and free market in science, apart from during the war, of course. But apart from wars, the government doesn't fund science. Yet Britain, yet America rather, becomes the richest country in the world from about 1890, by the way, in the complete absence of the government funding of science. But in 1950, with the Cold War looming, the Americans believed that they should start investing in pure science 
as well as government-funded technology, because the Russians were doing it. And then in 1957, when the Russian Sputnik was the first um, uh, satellite uh, to go around the world, and then soon after that, Yuri Gagarin in 61, 62, the first human to get into space, there was a real panic in the United States of America and in Britain that Russia was going to overtake Britain and America. This was a complete myth. This was Russia dissipating its entire wealth on this stupid project. Nonetheless, this was believed in America and Britain to be the way you got richer in the future. And so we have the huge creation of what Eisenhower called the military-industrial research complex, vast investment in science and technology in America and in Britain. And when you look at rates of GDP per capita growth from 1950 onwards, you get no deflection at all. GDP doesn't go down, but rates of growth simply do not go up any faster than they did in the century and a half before. The experiment has been tried and it has failed. With respect to government funding science, we presume this to be government building laboratories that are run by the government. Um, is that the main way that this occurs, or is it subsidies to private industry to beef up their R&D departments? Well, actually, that's, that's actually not a very good question, because 30 years ago, the answer was very different from today. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the answer was primarily subsidies to industry. The federal government would, would actually give companies vast subsidies, almost as if these were charities, in the hope that boosting their R&D would in some way create economic growth. It didn't work. And actually, if you look today, the American government today funds practically no civil R&D of direct support to industry without anyone almost noticing there's been a huge privatization of American R&D. Now the American government only funds what used to be called mission research. So it funds agriculture, it funds uh, health, of course, it funds space, it funds the environment, and it funds the NSF. But that's a very small amount of money, funnily enough. But the point is the American government now essentially funds only scientists in its own labs. So I would have expected that to be the opposite, right? It, it, during the Cold War, I would have expected, that, one, that any increase in science funding would have gone directly to government scientists, scientists whose paychecks read some federal department, um, in part because we were fighting a Cold War. Uh, so why would it be different today? Or why, why was that not the case then? Because basically they funded everything. There was a fantastic expenditure on research and development by the federal government. A lot of it, of course, went to its own labs, but a lot of it actually had to go to aviation companies, other specialized companies that could create goods. That, I mean, NASA didn't make its own rockets. It, it bought rockets in from other people, if you see what I mean. And so an awful lot of that money was a direct subsidy to industry. But there was yet another philosophical background that's now been lost, fortunately, which was a, there was an assumption that even ordinary industry or startup companies needed federal support because the market would fail. And gradually experience taught that the market does not fail. People like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, they got the money they needed for their startups. And so that has now completely gone away. But in the cases of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, the, the two names you mentioned, they were primarily working in consumer goods. Well, they were doing software, of course. That was the whole point of hardware going to software. So to come back to your earlier question, 
an awful lot of the early hardware development in the United States was subsidized by the federal government because they believed that would then build better military technology. But then the software, which was not such a concern of the federal governments, we then find that the software takes off very well, thank you very much, without the federal government, and the hardware would at all, would have as well. And we know that. We know the hardware would have anyway because of what's called Moore's Law. Moore's Law has been operating since 1890. What Moore's Law says is the power of computing doubles per dollar every two years, and it has done so since 1890, all the way back to those early mechanical computers, and then you get valves, and then you get silicon, and then now you have quantum. It's an absolute inexorable trait. And what it means by being so inexorable, despite the completely different regimes of government funding of science, is that the government funding of science makes absolutely no difference. If the government doesn't fund it, the private sector does. If the government does, the private sector stands back. But the rate of technological development owes nothing to the government funding of science. Okay, so with all that as the background, you argue that one, the feds are making a terrible mistake by uh, seeking this massive increase in funding for science. And uh, it, you argue instead that the government should radically cut funding, direct funding for science. Yes. I mean, let's just go through this. First of all, the best audits of the government funding of science have been made by the governments. This is a fact that's completely forgotten. The Congressional Budget Office has twice done these massive surveys of the impact of the federal government of research and development and found it has no positive impact at all. The OECD has done exactly the same across all the countries of the OECD. Government funding of science has absolutely no positive impact at all on economic growth. There's also been a very nice study that came out of the uh, Bureau of Labor, Labor Studies has done exactly the same thing in Washington, D.C., and there was an earlier study from the Defense Department. So we have five authoritative government studies, government studies, showing that the government funding of R&D has absolutely no positive impact. Private funding, of course, huge impact. That's completely different. Why? Very straightforward. There are relatively few good scientists. You know, Charles Darwin, Albert Einstein, they don't fall out of trees, these people. They are rare. And if you create wonderful government laboratories where people like Einstein or Charles Darwin can work to their heart's content on the projects that they want to, and that's the whole point of the government model, it's the scientists who determine what they're going to work on. You get fabulous science coming out of these government labs, but what you've done is you've taken the best researchers out of industry. And so industry is left with the researchers who were not good enough to go and work in the glittering university labs. And so industry gets less for its money when it invests in science, and therefore it invests less, and therefore the economy stutters. Therefore, government funding of pure science or even technology, actually, which then becomes driven by the researchers themselves, takes people out from where they should be, industry, into essentially, to use a cliche, ivory towers, and therefore the economy stutters. So help me understand this. If in the 50s, you know, late 40s, early 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the, the scientific funding provided by government was disproportionately to today, 
done through subsidies to private industry, you at least potentially have the benefit of private industry deciding what can we commercialize? What can we sell to create the new wonder products of uh, you know the next 10 years? If I understand you correctly, the funding that the government would be spending in this push for, to increase science spending would be overwhelmingly within government. And so you lose the benefit potentially of those uh, scientists having bosses who are accountable to the private sector in some regard. Exactly. And so my, my sense then is that potentially this could be a net negative in terms of productivity for the private sector. Uh, if you look at the OECD and some of these other government studies, they are they are basically talking about net negatives. They don't want to talk about it. You can sense the huge reluctance on the part of the authors of these studies to really say that. But they are trying to say net negative. Absolutely, that's what they're trying to say. And um, the facts are very simple. Uh, the era that you're talking about, um, there was a time when the federal government paid 67%, two-thirds of all R&D in America including on the private sector, was funded by the government, two-thirds. Now it's only about 22 23%. So huge, there's been a huge privatization of research and development over the last 30 or perhaps 40 years, certainly since um, the first men got to the moon. And since then, the federal government has paid for less and less research, completely under the radar, as I said. No one has noticed. And of course, it's made absolutely no impact at all. The American economy... <laughs> has done and remains the strongest economy in the world by a very, very large measure. Uh, and it's for exactly the reasons that you've just adumbrated. If you take the best scientists out of industry and put them in the universities or other federal labs, the transfer of knowledge to industry is simply very badly damaged. Now, there was a, uh, an act, the Bay-Dole Act, passed in 1980. The Congress recognized that this was a problem, and Congress tried to resolve this problem with the Bay-Dole Act. The Bay-Dole Act meant that uh, government-funded scientists were allowed to take out patents and create their own companies. And of course, that was an attempt to, to, break, to deal with that problem. But we can see that the results of that act, I'm afraid, have not been particularly good, despite the fact that the problem was recognized. The fundamental problem is you've got scientists in universities when they should be in industry. That's the fundamental problem. It turns out there's no easy way of resolving it. I think some of the concern about the rise of China as an economic power has a lot to do with the fact that the state can direct so much of the national income to projects that it values, whether or not the, the private sector in China thinks that that's a good use of those funds. And I think a lot of Americans view that as a specific kind of threat. Well, um, you can look at the patent rates of government-owned companies in China and privately-owned companies in China, and privately-owned companies take out three times more patents per unit of currency invested in them than do government-owned companies. So the Chinese government is actually as incompetent as any other government. The fear over China is greatly overblown. Chinese GDP per capita is only a quarter of that of the United States, or a sixth even, depending on how you want to measure it. And um, the concern that people have that 
China is stealing America's technology. Well, this is what all developing countries do. The, the Americans did this to the British uh, during the 19th century. Quite openly, you didn't have patents, or if you had patents, you didn't enforce them in the United States of America, and you quite deliberately stole British technology. And China's now doing that to you. It, it's the standard pattern. It's nothing of which to be alarmed. It's normal. But the really fundamental point about China, it is a very poor country. And even if the Chinese government does focus, as you have described, huge resources on technologies that might threaten America, it's still doing it from a very low base. And in the end, it's doing another Yuri Gagarin or a moonshot. It's wasting its resources for things that will not bring back an economic return. Terence Keeley is author of the new Cato paper, Don't Be Like China, Why the U.S. Government Should Cut Its Science Budget, available now. This month marks the 15th anniversary of the Cato Daily Podcast. In appreciation to our listeners, we have a small gift for you. Visit cato.org slash cdp15 to learn more. 